0: Uh, I, I was a, did an internship at Perimeter in uh, the mid-90s, and on my exit interview uh, with the staff there, uh, Gordon Moore, who's the guy that did all the interviews for the staff uh, as you leave, just asked me about my experience, and he asked the question, would you recommend someone else come and work on staff at, uh, at Perimeter Church? I said, absolutely. I had nothing negative to say. I mean, Perimeter has its warts like every other church. It's got its issues. Like, so it wasn't that I was silent on all issues. It's just that there was really nothing that was a major drawback for me. And I told him, I said, here's the greatest benefit that I received, though, is as an intern, I went in specifically with a laser focus in on youth ministry, trying to to direct uh, my knowledge, skill set, et cetera, towards understanding the depths of youth ministry to be able to go away and to minister to youth in another section of the country. But what I got a chance to do was to be impacted by two other pastors on staff in particular, and I shared with him those two pastors. One was Alan Foster, and the other was Mike Glass. And Mike, taking time out of his schedule to work with others um, there, he didn't have to do it. He didn't have to invest in me at all, but he did. And uh, and I am forever grateful for, uh, for the work that he did. You have a great pastor here amongst your midst. One of the things that I loved the most was that he was so ready to confess his sin to me. And I learned, even in my time at Perimeter, that it is not really about those who are a bastion of faith. It really is about us coming before the Lord and saying, I just, I can't. I'm I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not disciplined enough. I'm not whatever you want to put in there enough. And so, God, I just need help. And Mike, help walk me down that path early in my ministry life. And um, I'm just so grateful for it. My wife and I uh, were married while my second year doing internship at Perimeter. And uh, I share with the men this weekend. By the way, let me back up real quick. What we've been talking about um, throughout the, this is kind of, in many ways, the, the cap for our weekend, and, it, and yet it could stand alone uh, on this, so don't feel like you missed out on something, ladies, if you weren't there, or other men who couldn't make it for, for whatever reason. Um, but we sat on really kind of one particular concept and, and one thought, and, and that real thought is really this, is that our life before God, what God is really after is not so much our great faith. He's not really so much after us to where we're going to take on the world and we're going to fight the world. We're going to fight temptation. We're going to to fight everything so that we can help advance the kingdom of God. It's not really us moving in a direction and asking God to come and jump on board with us so that we can go and take some territory over for you, Lord. It's not really what he's after. What he's really after is those who come before him and say, God, I, I surrender to you. I surrender to your will. I surrender my life overall, but God, I even surrender the individual components of my life. But when it comes to us battling temptation, is it really about me developing more discipline, developing more accountability? Or is it really about me saying, God, I cannot, these eyes lead me into sin so often. So God, please redeem these eyes. This mouth continues to get me in trouble over and over and over again. I continue to gossip. I don't want to gossip. I hate it. But yet I walk into it again and again. So God, please today, take this mouth redeem it, do something with it, God, these hands today. Would you do something with these hands that's not intended for evil, but intended for good? We talked about what really God is after is a life of surrender to him rather than a life of commitment for him. Does he really need our commitment? (laughs) Is he really up in heaven saying, what am I going to do if they don't jump on board with me? How am I going to advance my kingdom? How am I going to build my church? Aha, whoo. No, he's on board with me. That's what God would say. So this morning I want to finish that thought, and we talked about it in, in context of we can't fight sin, even. And then we talked about we can't even bring glory to God or, or discern His will or live a life that's governed in that direction. What I want to sit on this morning, though, for just a minute, is we can't even maintain our own faith. And getting to the place where we acknowledge it is where God says yes. God doesn't look down on his children and who say, I can't maintain my faith. I can't keep walking this way, Lord. He doesn't look down and say, well, get it together. He says, I know. So in my internship, uh, I got married the second year of the internship. Uh, We were uh, beyond poor. We were beyond the poverty level um, there. But the Lord provided for us. We made it. Um, But when we went to North Carolina, we got this ginormous paycheck. It was It was so large that we thought there's no way we will ever spend this paycheck for a year's salary. It was $36,000. And we were rolling in the dough. And at that point we knew now is the time for us to have children. And so we started the process to have children. We just couldn't get pregnant. And, And we couldn't get pregnant after months and we couldn't get pregnant after years. And all of our friends around us are getting pregnant and having kids and we're rejoicing with them, genuinely rejoicing with them. And at the same time, something was going on deep inside of us that was uh, getting to a deeper level of pain than we were even previously aware of. We decided to go the route of adoption. It didn't take us long to to talk about that, to discuss that. Um, We both felt like that would be a great option for us. We pursued that route. I'll spare you all the details, but it was failure after failure after failure. There were five failed placements that we had until the Lord finally brought to us twin boys and, and these twin boys that uh, came into our life, it was, um, it's hard to describe the joy that we experienced at that moment. But the joy of adopting the twins did not take away the pain of infertility. But hear this, the pain of infertility did not take away from the joy of adopting either. Both of these things existed simultaneously. We moved in, in this route and, and it wasn't long after that. It was just a couple of years in which we received a call from a woman who asked if we would adopt uh, the the boy that she was about to give birth to. Uh, We said, absolutely, we would love to do that. We Adopted him. The day that we got home from the hospital, my wife looked me in the eye and she said, one is missing. (laughs) I'm sorry, what? She said, one's missing. I think the Lord wanted us to adopt two. Okay. <laughs> so it was just a year later, thirteen months later we brought another child into our home through some other miraculous circumstances. They could not find a home for this particular child in Florida. They called us as we were getting ready to go to Ethiopia and to adopt two more children uh, that were over there. And so now we have these four children and in, in January of two thousand and nine, all of our paperwork is done and we are getting ready to board a plane in May and, and head to Ethiopia to go adopt these two other little precious boys. All of our children would gather together. We'd see the little video. They would send a DVD of us of them. And, and we would pray for these little boys. And, and my guys were just getting so excited. Now, the twins, you got to understand, every time that we would say, hey, do you want another brother? They would say yes. And then we would get in the car and go. So they thought it was like a, a, you know, a trip to Walmart or something like that. Where you just go and pick up a child. And... So as we are, are, are headed down this road... Uh, My wife uh, gets really, really sick, and and, um, my wife is insanely disciplined. Um, She just, uh, even if she is sick, she can still function, you know. I mean, I I get a fever of like 99, and I'm in bed for four days. She, on the other hand, is a machine. She just keeps going. Um, It's unbelievable. If I had half her discipline, I'd be president of the United States right now. She, uh, she gets so sick that she has a hard time functioning. And for me, I said, you know what? It's, honey, we got to go to the doctor. So we go to the doctor. They run all sorts of tests, cannot find out what's wrong with her. Go to another doctor, runs all sorts of tests, cannot find out. After the third doctor, uh, we could not uh, determine what it is that's going on with her body. They all said, something is clearly going on. You're, you're sick. And, and something is happening, but we can't figure out what it is. So we finally got a recommendation to go to this other doctor this doctor who specializes in kind of some out there diseases, et cetera. So I went in and this lady said, yeah, I've got a theory as to what this is and uh, I'm gonna check it. And, uh, and, and anyway, she checked it. She came back. She said, it's exactly what I thought it was. You're pregnant. <laughs> now, my wife is sitting there and she's, she's saying, "Apparently, <laughs> apparently you don't understand who I am. <laughs> my wife's pituitary gland had shut down Okay, it's no longer functioning for my wife. There was, the news that we got from the doctors was not only, here's why you can't get pregnant, you will never be able to be pregnant. After 10 years of battling infertility, we finally came to a place where we said, Lord, we're okay. We're at peace. And then we got pregnant. And so my wife calls me on the way home and I, my first reaction was, honey, I got to buy a bigger car. Because <laughs> we, we had gotten a Suburban in preparation for these two uh, uh, younger ones that would come in and it was the exact amount of seats that we needed. And so now I'm thinking, I'm wrecking my brain going, Lord, you're going to have to miraculously provide again for us to have some sort of a, uh, like a 12 passenger van. I don't know. You know, maybe a, a school bus would do fine with us. It's whatever, a turbo Twinkie school bus. You got going on. It's what, You're going to have to do something, Lord. And... And so we, um, it didn't change our adoption plans at all. In fact, we said we need to hide this pregnancy from them. We won't lie to them, but we're not going to bring it up to them because if you bring it up, they might say, hey, we need to hold off for right now. So we we decided to be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, not share anything. 18 weeks, we go and uh, get the ultrasound done. And uh, we had not shared this with anyone until the 15-week mark. And uh, began began sharing this news. And at 18 weeks, we got to go and to watch the little thing. They put it on her belly. You get something gram. What is that thing called? Ultrasound. ultrasound. Not even a gram. I'm terrible. Ultrasound. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a doctor also, by the way. <laughs> got the ultrasound on. And, uh, and, and so there was the debate. I, I didn't want to know what the sex of the child was. My wife sort of did. We were debating going back and forth. And... And then I always said, all right, honey, if if you want to know what it is, then we'll know. And and so the, the lady told us, well, it's a little girl. So now my mind goes down the road of this little girl with six older brothers above her who are going to rip the head off of anyone who looks twice at her. My work would be very easy as a father raising this girl. So, I mean, I had all these thoughts, you know, running through my head right there at that moment. I thought about walking her down the aisle and then whatever other pastor would say who gives this woman to be married, I'd say her mother and I do, and then I would step up and take over. I mean, all these thoughts and dreams that went on and uh, just a a blast. A week and a half later, um, I got a phone call from my wife and... Uh, she said, something is wrong and I'm in a tremendous amount of pain. I'm heading down to the doctor. Will you come meet me? And I said, sure. And so I went down to to meet her and um, sure enough, our worst fears were were realized. And uh, she um, was no longer alive. She had died um, at 19 weeks and because we were so far along in the process, um, we had to deliver her as opposed to uh, just have a DNC. So We went and delivered. It was every bit as beautiful and horrific as you could imagine. I'm so thankful we had a chance to hold her for a little while, though. We had a chance to pray over her. I prayed in the hospital. From dust we came, from dust we shall return. Commit her spirit unto you, Lord. That was Wednesday when we went in the hospital. We delivered on Thursday. We had to spend one more night in the hospital. On Friday, we came home, spent the night on Friday. And on Saturday, I boarded a plane to go to Ethiopia to go pick up these younger two while my wife stayed back and dealt with the grief and the, the horror. It was, um, it was her worst nightmare. Here's what you need to know about my wife. My wife, for years, has struggled with thoughts of God is out to get me. And all along in this process, it it, it was, she was faced with just day after day as she continued to be pregnant, God was giving to her something she knew she didn't deserve. He didn't have to. And every day she was forced to deal with the goodness of God and then her worst nightmare came true. And while I'm on the plane, I prayed with my family before I left. And while I'm on the plane, somewhere in between Washington DC, Dulles Airport, and we had to fuel over in Rome, Italy before we went over to Ethiopia, somewhere in there, just utter darkness came over my eyes and my mind and I, I could not see or think any spiritual thought. I could not think of truth. My pain had, had so colored everything that I was viewing and, and I, I just didn't know what to do. I'm a man, so I made the decision halfway through the trip there in, in Ethiopia to just shut down, to compartmentalize and to deal with this whole issue later on. And so I just shoved it to the side and just moved forward and went to go meet my two new boys. Upon arriving back home, all the questions that my wife had for those years finally came to my mind and I thought for the first time in my life, what if it's true? What if God really is punishing us? What if he really is against us? I had... I had not had faults like that in years. I was a, I've grown up in this particular denomination. I've grown up with this line of thinking of God is sovereign, he is in control of all things and, and you rest in that and he is, all of his wrath has been poured out on Jesus on a cross. I, I, I could not think about truth. And as the weeks went on, I, in my questioning with God, I, I, I just did not pray. I shut down until I finally decided for the first time in my life, I decided I'm going to abandon the faith, not just get out of ministry. That was a given. I'm going to abandon the faith. And so I began to convince myself of all of the ludicrousy of the scriptures I mean, did this guy really get swallowed by a giant fish, for crying out loud? Did this really happen? Did the seas really part open and people walk through on dry ground? Did, did Joshua really put something in the, ground, in the water and it stopped way upstream? I just began to go through all this stuff. Did the sun really stop? Did the earth stop its rotation? I began to convince all of myself, or myself of all of what I thought might be the inconsistencies of Scripture And I was doing a good job on my way to becoming an atheist until I got to Jesus. I could not unbelieve. I could not convince myself that Jesus did not really do what it is that he did. I couldn't convince myself that he wasn't a real man who came to the earth, who died a real death, who actually died on Friday, was dead on Friday, was dead on Saturday, was dead on a portion of Sunday, but on Sunday morning came back to life. I couldn't stop believing. I couldn't find a way to convince myself that that was a farce, and so now I'm stuck. I don't wanna be with this God over here. I don't wanna be with the mongrel, the monster who has pounced on my wife and I when we didn't ask for this pregnancy. I wanna keep him at a distance, but yet I know it's true. And so what do I do? So I began to walk in life with an arm like this until the middle of July, which by the way, that's April and May when the events occurred. I get to the middle of July And we have this retreat at our church, and on the way home from this retreat, I I am so convicted by the Holy Spirit that just says, pray about Bradford. And I began praying. And, And I just began weeping uncontrollably. I had to pull off to the side of the road and just stay for a moment parked. And I said, Lord, this is the last time I will ever talk to you about her. So I limped along in life. The church was so gracious uh, to me. I, I confess this to my boss, to the, my authority. They were so gracious to work with me, to love me, to challenge me, to hold me accountable, to, to give me room. In the fall, the time came in which I'm leading a particular Bible study. It's of students that are upperclassmen. It's a leadership track. It's something that they asked me to do a couple years previous to this and I started it and the Lord just showed up in this thing and so the students are the ones who get to determine what book of the Bible that we study and so they chose the book of Habakkuk and I said "All right, we'll do a study on Habakkuk I'm sure you guys will get something out of it and I opened Habakkuk and I began studying to prepare for this and the Lord absolutely floored me and so for just 10-12 minutes, I'd love to just share with you what the Lord said. If you have your Bibles, open with me to the book of Habakkuk. It's close to the end of the Old Testament. So if you get to Matthew, start going backwards, just a little ways, and you'll run into Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a prophet that shows up on the scene, and I believe that when he was a child, he experienced the great reforms and the great revival of the nation now, keep in mind the history of the nation of Israel. you got Moses and then Joshua, and then you've got these judges, and then you've got this group that comes along. These You've got the kings then that get in there, and you've got three kings, and then at the end of Solomon's reign, the kingdom divides, and it goes into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom never, ever, 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 ever experiences a good king. They're all wicked. The southern kingdom experiences several good kings, though. Now, both of them would eventually fall away from the Lord, but the southern kingdom on, hung on a little bit longer as they had. So one of those good kings was a king named Josiah. He, through the reading of the scriptures, his heart was pierced, and he set about some reforms for the whole people, and a revival took place, and great things were happening, and Habakkuk is on the scene, and he sees what's going on there. And after Josiah steps down, there's another king that comes along and takes them away from the Lord. And now Habakkuk is thinking back to those days when the people were walking with the Lord and he comes before the Lord with some serious questions. Habakkuk chapter one, verse one, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Listen. Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Injustice never prevails. The wicked him in the righteous so that justice is perverted. How long, O Lord? He's talking about all of the injustice that's taking place around him. And you and I get this. We understand. We we look at the world that we live in and we would see injustice too. And, And if you have never asked this question, then let me say it this way. I don't think you're thinking deeply enough about life. If you have never asked the Lord before, where are you? How do you look at Hitler and not say, God, where are you? How do you look at the atrocities that are happening when when there's genocide that takes place? How do you not look at that and say, God, where are you in this? Habakkuk is saying, God, all the injustice that where are you? It's not just injustice. It's personal things that happen that you and I know are wrong. It's not the way that God created the world. We know that this is not what we're destined for in the long run. We look at cancer. We look at the suffering of our parents or our grandparents. We look at things that have happened to our children. We say, God... I know this is not what you want long-term. Where are you? Habakkuk is asking. It took me all of 10 seconds to identify with the prophet. Maybe you are dealing presently with a child that is wayward. Maybe you are dealing with a spouse who has gone crazy on you. Maybe you're dealing with a parent who actually has dementia and can't remember you anymore. I don't know what you may be dealing with. Maybe you have an unexplained pregnancy and an undesirable death of a child. Where are you? The Lord answers him, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places, not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law unto themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert desert wind and gather prisoners like sand they deride kings and scoff at rulers they laugh at all fortified cities they build earthen ramps and capture them then they sweep past like the wind and go on guilty men whose own strength is their god now i don't know if you caught all that because most of us don't read it god is basically saying here's my answer to you look over here at the wicked what i'm going to do is i'm going to raise the wicked up I'm going to empower them to bring about judgment on people. I am going to do this work. You wouldn't believe me if I told you beforehand what what plan was. I'm sorry. Apparently, Lord, you didn't understand my question. My question is, how long are you going to let injustice go? And now you're telling me that you are going to raise up the unjust in order to take care of injustice? That really doesn't help. God, in his answer to the prophet just points but here's what we'll get he just points and says i'm on it i'm not going to tell you everything i'm going to i'm just telling you i'm on it <clears throat> oh lord are you not from everlasting my god my holy one we will not die Oh, Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. Oh, rock, you have ordained them to punish. Wait a minute. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous Then themselves, you have made men like fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls up all of them with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is it he to keep on his emptying his his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts and I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Habakkuk, he reveals himself right here. (laughs) God, you cannot use those folks. They're not as righteous as I am. God, I'm asking you while the injustice is taking place before your people, I'm saying, God, with all of this that's happening, I know you're going to get rid of it in the future. God, you owe me an explanation. As I'm reading this, I'm realizing back in the fall of 2009 as I'm preparing, them, I realized that I had try to keep the Lord at a distance right here, knowing that I can't get rid of him. My theology has told me that he's bigger than me, <laughs> that he is faithful even when I am unfaithful, so I know that he's not going to go anywhere, but I'm, I'm trying to keep him at, at arm's length distance. And, and, and the time comes in which we are going to talk, and I'm saying, Lord, hang on just a minute. I'm looking around at all of the things in the world. I'm looking around at all of the people that are beating their children. I'm looking at all the children who, who, are, who, are, who are left, who are abandoned. I'm looking all over the globe. And I'm seeing all the atrocities that are taking place. And we didn't ask for you to get us pregnant. But somehow or another, you got us pregnant. And so now, Lord, I'm asking you to tell me why it is that you're doing this. Because I'm not seeing a whole lot of good that's coming out of this. In essence, what I was asking the Lord, telling the Lord, God, I am your servant. I've been faithful to you. You owe me. (laughs) And here's what I sense the Lord saying firmly and gently. No, I don't. I don't owe you a thing. Habakkuk says, I'm going to stand right here. I'm going to wait. I'm going to see what the answer is that you give and listen to the Lord's answer. We won't read all of it. I want to read the first section. We'll actually stop at verse four. Verse two, then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that the herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. It will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. The first time God points out and he says, I want you to look and just see what it is I'm going to do. The second time he answers him, though, he points inside to the prophet. And he gets down to the depths, to the core of who he is as a prophet. And he says, I'm telling you, Habakkuk. The righteous will live by faith. Three times this is used in the New Testament. I won't walk you through all of them, but it's used in my mind. So clearly in my mind, it's used in the context of justification. It's used in the context of sanctification. It's used in the context of glorification. Three big words basically says this, how we are made right with God, how we are made more like Christ, and how in the end we will be made perfect. Nothing in us that will be sinful. He says the righteous will live by faith. He's looking at the prophet and he says, you may not understand this, but what I'm telling you is I justify you by faith. Now, when I first read it, I thought, okay, he's getting Habakkuk to come back. And you've heard that statement over and over again, haven't you? It's my faith that got me through it. (laughs) Your faith will not get you through it. His faithfulness will get you through it. His ability will get you through it. His sufficiency will get you through it. Think of it this way. It's his faith that he gives to you. That will make you righteous. That will give you faith. What Habakkuk realizes over a period of time is this. I don't understand everything. I don't have to understand everything. What I do know is this: If you choose to do nothing else good for me, I will choose to worship you. Chapter three, which I won't read because I'm just out of time. Chapter three is a different chapter. It's a different writing that he has, and what he's saying in this, we don't know how much time passes in between chapter two and chapter three, but in chapter three, he basically comes to the conclusion, says this: If everything else fails, if there's no cattle in the barn, if there's no stock, if there's nothing else that I have, I will choose to worship you because you have spoken loudly and clearly through the cross. I don't know how God did this. I can't explain it. What I know happened is this. At some point along the road, something internally happened in Judith and I, and it did not happen overnight, but something happened where we said, we may never ever know the reason why God got us pregnant and then took Bradford on home. But it's okay. Not it's okay in that it doesn't hurt. It's okay in that it's well with my soul. Today, you, you may be asking the Lord, where are you? you? You may be asking him, do you love me? Because that's the ultimate question, isn't it? The ultimate question from you and I as we look and we see circumference, we say, God, do you love me? And I think he does with you and I the same thing that he did to his prophet as he points to a cross. He says, you want to know if I love you? I sent my son to redeem your very soul. And if I never receive anything else from the Lord, if I never have any other blessing that would ever come from God, the fact that he has redeemed me Screams out, he loves me. Think of it this way. Just as he was silent with the prophet, do you love me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Um, Lord, we believe that we are not even capable of handing on, handing, hanging on to our own faith. Um, We are not powerful enough. We're not smart enough. We don't have enough moxie um, to hang on to you. So God, praise be to you. You said you cannot be unfaithful to yourself. So um, Lord, thank you for giving us room uh, to let us breathe, to question, to wonder. Um, But ultimately, God, thank you for your faithfulness to draw us back in. So for all today who are here and who are not I'm sure about moving on forward with you. I I just thank you that you are more concerned about them. Thank you, Jesus, that you said that those the Father's placed in your hand, you will not let go. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. To you goes all the praise and the glory and the honor. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.